I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And a hearty farewell to summer. Farewell summer. I think everyone's ready for it now, aren't they? I was certainly very ready for a change of season last week. The heat waves have been fun, as has the pub, but I'm ready for some early nights and some early mornings and just lots of soup. I'm ready for the soup days. My God, it was a hot one. It was all, it was, no, am I going to say that it was almost too hot? It was a little bit too hot. The primary sensation I felt in the last month as I sat at my desk existentially panicking about my book deadline, which I hear is a distinctly ununique experience, <laughs> was of rivulets of sweat traversing the undercarriage of my boobs through to the left of my ribcage and then snaking back along my stomach. We've been reading a lot on our break, so this is going to be a bumper book special with lots of reading recommendations. So if you don't like books, soz not soz. We also have some breaking news, courtesy That's of... ironic if you haven't learned by now. Every time Dolly says we have some breaking news, it's broken with a damp squib. Ages ago, probably. Courtesy of all the pointless surveys that have been flooding our inboxes in August with no outlet to go <laughs> to. Every PR in Britain is quaking about where these stats are going to go, if not the high-low. <laughs> Shocking new stats such as the best British destination for finding love has been announced. 2,000 Brits... I only say that word when I'm reading these surveys... 2,000 Brits were surveyed across the UK on everything from how many are in long-term relationships to how much people spent on their hair for dates to identify the best and worst cities to find love. The key findings were Oxford is the best place in the UK to find long-term love, followed by Derry, Plymouth, Bath and Hull. London is for long-term lovers Despite the high cost of dating, the capital ranks in first place for successful long-term relationships. Now, hold on here. That's really interesting. You'd think in London, you know, bright lights, big city, buzzy, lots of distractions. I would have thought there would be least successful long-term relationships. Now, I have a theory on this. Urban communities, I think, more discontent. So I think that London has a very successful transference from one night stand to relationship and it's because it's such a large city and everyone is increasingly being pushed out to the green belt so you have a one night stand let's say you're in your Paris you're in your New York you're in your Brooklyn Manhattan you just walk home but in London sometimes with TFL you're looking at a two-hour train journey home what do you do you stay there you accidentally become the person's girlfriend and why do you not think that's happening in pastoral communities? Because I think they probably have cars. I think it's all because of transport in London. I think you accidentally fall into relationships because you can't be bothered to go home. I think your options are better in London, though. That's true. I think there's more singledom FOMO 
in London. London. Have you ever fallen into a relationship because of uh, the transport? 100%. Have you? Jesus. Battersea to Camden was a long old way. You lazy asshole. <laughs> Aspiring paramours should steer clear of Peterborough. Citizens 30. That's where the passport <laughs> offices. Citizens. <laughs> Citizens 30 a staggering... 10.82 dates before making it official, meaning they spend nearly £1,000 to find love. Expensive date. And the secret formula seems to be that the top five cities for finding love tend to be less densely populated, near water and beautiful scenery, and boast higher than average salary expectations for residents. I have to say I've always rather liked the idea of living in Oxford and being a blue stocking and cycling around with a satchel full of books so maybe I'll go there here are some of my favourite things from the summer my favourite man of the summer was and still is Thatcher Wine a biblio curator who sourced 600 books for Gwyneth Paltrow's new home is his name Thatcher? Thatcher Wine the premise of his job depresses me will she actually read any of those books that she hasn't selected for herself but his name as you rightly guessed delights me my favourite fast food news from the summer is that KFC are trialling, who'd have thunk it, chicken substitutes made from plants. I thought this was very progressive of them. It is very progressive Interested of them. to try. My favourite TV news is that Supermarket Sweep is back on Monday, a show that inspires the same sort of nostalgia as Blind Date and Gladiators. And Rylan is its host. I think that's perfect casting, actually. Yeah, me too. I will be tuning in. I don't think I ever watched the first one. My favourite competition has just been announced. Not the Pulitzer, not the Nobel, not even the Booker. But Rear of the Year. I love Rear of the Year. How is this competition still going? It's Amanda Holden, a woman who I think has, or if she hasn't, could win every year for the last decade. I think she has won before. I'm sure she's won before. I think only about three people. They just rotate rears. There's a particular photo shoot because part of the the more historic Rear of the Year <laughs> awards is that it was sponsored by a company called Wizard Jeans. And there was a photo shoot that was always done with the male and female rear of the year, showing off the back pocket. I have never seen a wizard jean. So my favourite shoot that they did of them wearing the wizard jeans was in 2012 when John Barrowman won. And I think it's the most awkward photo shoot to show off one's posterior. Look it up and show me. I've ever seen. Just go to the go to the right. Oh my god. So John Barrowman is wearing Shobna Galati on his back, but is then like looking back to the camera. So keep going, they get worse. Oh my god, that one of him under. I know they're just desperate to show off the wizard jeans. Anyway, we'll put these all on Twitter because they are my favourite. It actually says wizard jeans on the bum pocket. They're embroidered. Are they paid for this? I don't know. I don't... <laughs> I know. They're really good. Oh, my God. That is literally how the high-low takes pictures. Also, CJ has just informed us that Frank Skinner won one year, and I know that Carol Vorderman has won twice. Yes, I knew that about Carol Vorderman. I think that's probably... It's a very specific tier of British celebrity, isn't it, that wins? Well, I thought it was kind of presenter, but Frank Skinner's a bit of an anomaly, I would say, there. <laughs> Lastly, but Anyway, certainly... many congratulations to Amanda Holden. Many congratulations. Lastly, but certainly not leastly... My favourite tweet of the summer came via BBC presenter Jane Garvey. Oh, you sent this to me. I loved it. Shifting slightly in my one piece by the pool in Italy as a group of impossibly slinky folk hop onto a motorboat. Men in pale blue linen, white shirts, slip-ons. A total absence of utility trues, like a different species. Makes me homesick. <laughs> tweet of the summer. Also, I'm so desperate for Fortunately to come back. I'm hoping it will come back this Friday. Have they also been taking a break? Yeah, they do their summer break as well. We really are, I hope, on our way to being Fee and Jane. <laughs> 
Other big news of the summer, far-right Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has been widely criticised after he allowed a fire to rage for three weeks in the Amazon rainforest this summer. There have been 80,000 fires this year, um, which have broken out in the Amazon. Most of the fires are man-made and deliberate, started both by farmers clearing the forest for to make way for cattle, as well as illegal land grabbers. That's a 77% increase on last year. The rainforest provides more carbon than humans could in 100 years, and deforestation is a huge part of the climate crisis. Bolsonaro, a man with horrible views, uh, who is really quite dangerous in many ways, has refused to attend a summit. I mean, he's claimed he's having surgery and has criticised Germany for stopping its donations and Norway, the biggest donator to the Amazon, at 985 million over the last decade, um, who have threatened to suspend funding to a Brazilian environmental protection fund unless he sorts them out. And Jeffrey Epstein, the financier and convicted sex offender, committed suicide before his trial, leading to an investigation into how both guards on Suicide Watch were asleep. Absolutely extraordinary chain of events that uh, led to that happening. There's an ongoing question over the involvement of Prince Andrew after he gave what Marina Hyde hilariously described as a word salad of a statement of denial. Brilliant. I brilliant love that as phrase. a term. Yeah. <laughs> so much word salad on the news right now. Oh my God, all of politics is a word salad at the moment. Prince Andrew is a friend of Epstein and has been accused by Virginia Roberts of forcing her to have sex with him when she was 17 years old, uh, when she was being used as a sex slave by Epstein and lent out to his friends. It's a horrible, horrible story. And I reckon we're going to be reading a lot about the posthumous trial um, in New York as obviously the victims still very much want Mm -hmm. um, justice to be served and we'll obviously be reading a lot more about Prince Andrew's involvement. In lighter news, what did you think of this summer's reigning hashtag Hot Girl Summer? It will come as zero surprise to you that I have not heard of any hashtag from this summer, let alone a reigning one. Have you heard of Hot Girl Summer, Charlie? Charlie, I saw that you used that hashtag actually on your own selfie. I've used that hashtag, I used that hashtag underneath a picture of you I think. (laughs) It's been used over two million times on social media this summer, contrary to these two dinosaurs. It's a lyric from a song by Megan the Stallion. It hit Megan mass- the Stallion. <laughs> That's her stage name. It's a bit convoluted. It hit mass appeal when Miley Cyrus, who is soon to be divorced from the actor Liam Hemsworth, wrote under a picture of the girl she is dating in response to that girl's ex-husband, who happens to be Kim Kardashian's half brother, Brody Jenner. Hot girl summer. You still with me? Lost you ages There's ago. There's one name Miley. that I recognise in that, and that's Miley Cyrus. Okay, I thought weirdly, I thought it might have been Brodie Jenner. That's, um, so are people doing it about pictures of themselves? So I read um, in, I think, LA Times or Time magazine, there's been quite a lot of coverage on it, um, that people were using it for, like, body positivity. I thought they were more just using it as, like... If I were one of those ambassadors for the body positivity community who is doing so much amazing breakthrough work, I think I would be really fucked off. <laughs> By how body positivity is being co-opted by women on Instagram. I thought that this. I thought it was just like an ironic hashtag that people used. Do you uh, think it's ironic? Um, I mean, Ollie used it under a picture of me and him, and yes, I would say that was ironic. But no, you're right. I reckon people use it now like they use goals. I'm just so interested in how you know. Look, I'm not the face of modesty when it comes to Instagram. Neither are most people who use Instagram. But I do find it interesting how there's been this move on social media to say things about yourself that in, until very recent times, it's so inappropriate. You, you should wait for someone else to say it about you. 
reclaiming yourself, Dolly. It's so odd, but it's so funny how like that used to be seen as such embarrassing immodesty. Look, it's immodest. It's immodest enough to post a picture well, of yourself the- in a bikini, but then to call yourself a hot girl. I think it's very interesting because I think the pendulum swung from one extreme to the other. It used to be that if you didn't hate your body, you were really arrogant. And now I think there's this weird thing where if you don't love your body, you're doing a disservice to other women. This idea that, like, everyone's a bit scared to say uh, if they're on a diet because it looks like, you know, you're promoting unhealthy eating habits or you're commenting on the size of women's bodies rather than it being, like, a personal choice. Mm. So I think it's definitely gone from one extreme to the other, whereas... Obviously, what we've talked about before, the idea would be body neutrality. So, mm. no hot girl summer, no, I fucking love my cellulite, no, I'm dying for my ripples. But beyond beyond beauty, it's just something I've noticed on social media of people describing themselves in a vernacular that seems more appropriate to me that you should wait for other people to say it about you. Do you know what I mean? Totally, totally. But I think Even that's part of that. Even if it's talking about assessing, assessing your personality or your work accomplishments or something. It's just, it's, it's just a very interesting yeah. linguistic shift, I think, online. Totally. And I think there's... I think that's just the extremity of it. Yeah. This polarisation of one or the other. Yeah. When neither are actually are particularly comfortable places mm, to be. Exactly, yeah. A terrifying story I read in the news today is that a 17-year-old is blind after living on a diet of chips and crisps. Since leaving primary school, the teen has been eating only French fries, Pringles and white bread, as well as an occasional slice of ham or sausage. Tests reveal he had severe vitamin deficiencies and malnutrition damage. The story has been angled by certain news sources as being a warning against accommodating the habits of fussy-eating children. But I have to say having seen so many of my friends try to wrangle and placate and calm their children when it comes to eating or changing their food habits, it looks very, very difficult. So I do think this is not a straightforward story of parental neglect at all. I also think he's 17 years old and he's got plenty of agency and you know at that age Mm. that you have to eat vegetables. I'm kind of staggered that it went on for so long. Mm. Desperately sorry it turned into blindness, but... Yeah, 17, you you know that you have to eat vegetables. Yeah, there's a, there's an interesting conversation going on at the moment, isn't there? Because you and I are so anti-food and nutrition puritanism and the kind of moralistic marshalling of one's eating habits. I think it's really, really dangerous, but equally, you know... Stories like this are quite scary. Yeah, yeah. But as I said, I don't... I, I slightly bristled against the idea that this story should be positioned as a kind of warning to parents because I just No, I actually didn't think of his parents. I know a 17-year-old is still... Actually, are you legally a child? Yeah, you are. You are. Um, but, you know, you're, you are enough from control of your eating habits, I think, at that age. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, it's very, very sad. Bringing the light to your shade, I read something that made me shudder right down to my own undercrackers. Almost half of Americans admit to having worn the same underpants for two or more days in a row. Players. Fine. Needs must. That's a lot, actually. Sometimes you don't pack enough, but at least hand wash them overnight. Yeah. But 13% said they had at least once worn the same pair for a week. Oh, that's horrible. That's horrible, actually. Could they walk themselves to the washing machine? Also, the answer is obviously don't wear knickers. I'll be totally honest, 90% of the time I don't wear knickers anymore. If this was in print, that would be the headline. When I'm wearing a long skirt... Yeah, I, I know what you mean. 
like when I'm wearing jeans, I think it's only right and, and proper to wear a pair of pants. <laughs> a tough gusset. Because it's a it's an abrasive gusset. But when you're wearing a long, floaty skirt, or if you're a bit of a dame and you're wearing a short skirt, just don't wear just don't wear knickers. You don't Yeah, I slightly balk at the short skirt, but I'm totally with you on the long skirt. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, or perhaps surprisingly, because I thought it would be bigger than this, men are 2.5 times more likely to do this than women. Does not surprise me at all. (laughs) My final story from the summer that I'm just delighted by is that sheep are being reintroduced to Hampstead Heath. (laughs) That's so sweet. (laughs) For the first time in 60 years, sheep have returned to graze on London's Hampstead Heath. Not since the 1950s has there been a flock roaming free on the heath. They are a great alternative to machinery in keeping vegetation in check in an environmentally friendly way. How exciting is that? Unfortunately, they will be gated off, um, so you won't be able to stride up to them for a sheepy snuggle. But I think it will be just such a lovely addition to the heath and a nice autumnal treat to look forward to on your walks. I think since I've turned 31, I'm inching closer and closer to presenting some sort of podcast like Rambling with Claire Balding. (laughs) Still my favourite thing you've ever read out is the... um... What was it? The worm saying hello to the worm. Oh yeah, touching your head on the grass. Yeah, what was I it? Loved all that. Took the piss out of you. Was that a letter we got? It was a letter about immersing yourself in. Oh, and you read it. <laughs> I am heading that way a bit. So. <gasps> I need to dig out that letter. I am heading that way. I'm going to try and swim in the pond all year round this year. Plenty of women do it. Yeah, I know. They're tough old birds, though. They've got quite a delicate constitution. (laughs) My last story from the summer, uh, which I know you will adore, Dolly, is a small story that nonetheless made it into the newspapers of a woman who read out Kim Adonizio's To the Woman Crying Uncontrollably in the Next Door Stall to a woman that she had heard crying in the loo next door to her. When Agnes Frimston heard a woman crying in the loo next door at a club in Soho, House of St Barnabas, which is also a charity supporting the homeless. It's brilliant, I've been there. She yelled, are you all right? And then launched into the poem. She gave her number to the woman who texted her later and said, I will never, ever forget your voice through the closed door. Thank you, Agnes. I love that story so much. It's such a true story of the sisterhood that can happen between women who don't know each other. And I know Agnes as well. She's a very, very brilliant writer. And I love that this is bibliotherapy in action. Words words as medicine and therapy. And it's also still one of my very favourite poems of all time. For those of you who have not heard the poem, I'll read it again here as it's really lovely. To the woman crying uncontrollably in the next stall by Kim Adonizio. If you ever woke in your dress at 4am, ever closed your legs to a man you loved, opened them for one you didn't, moved against a pillow in the dark, stood miserably on a beach, seaweed clinging to your ankles, paid good money for a bad haircut, backed away from a mirror that wanted to kill you, bled into the back seat for lack of a tampon. If you swam across a river under rain, sang using a dildo for a microphone, stayed up to watch the moon eat the sun entire, ripped out the stitches in your heart, Because why not, if you think nothing and no one can, listen, I love you, joy is coming. Support for the Hilo comes from Secret Spa. Secret Spa brings beauty treatments to the home. Avoid the schlep to the salon and put London's best beauty and massage therapists straight to your home, hotel or workplace through Secret Spa's mobile app. I have a confession to make. Go on. I used Secret Spa last night. Sunday night massage in the comfort of my own bedroom. I thought you seemed a bit overly relaxed today. 
I'm deeply envious snuffling through my revolting coals. You do look <laughs> the epitome of health and relaxation. Oh, thank you. It was so, so good. There was a lot of deep tissue elbow action. Oh, yeah. Unknotting my crunchy old back. <laughs> It was so, so good. Secret Spa offers a full menu of at-home beauty and wellness treatments, including massage, manicures, waxing, spray tan, lashes and brows. There's no need to worry about travelling home after a relaxing massage or facial that's left you red-faced or worry about smudging your toenails. Personally, I literally just rolled straight into bed yesterday afterwards. And unlike a salon, you can book out-of-hours appointments from 7 in the morning to 10 in the evening, so you can squeeze your beauty treatments in before, during or after work around your busy day. As a mother to a toddler, I cannot describe how convenient this is. I virtually never go to a salon anymore. If I'm ever going to have a pedicure or treat myself to a massage, then I do it at 7.30pm at home for the same price, if not frequently cheaper than actually going to a salon. The quality of therapists is consistently excellent because Secret Spa puts such effort into finding the very best after rigorous rounds of assessment. I can attest that my massage therapist was utterly brilliant last night. Prices start at £35 and to enjoy an exclusive £15 off your first booking, download the Secret Spa app or visit secretspa.co.uk and use the code HILO at checkout. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. Right, Panda, bumper book special, you get the ball rolling. What have you been enjoying this summer? I'm going to start with a quote that I saved, as I thought you would also love it. To find a person inexhaustible is simply the definition of love. That's from the British novelist Iris Murdoch, who died in the 90s. And two series I, I adored, for very different reasons, were Euphoria, dubbed the most shocking teen drama ever. You can watch it on Sky now. Everyone's gone nutty for it. Watch it. I need a boyfriend with Sky. This is my appeal. Thank you. Just come watch it here. I'd say I'd say it's about teens, not necessarily for teens. And Zendaya Coleman and Hunter Schaefer are incredible. And the other series I have just loved is Game Face, which is a series created and written and stars the comedian Roisin Connerty. Love um, her. She plays the protagonist, Marcella. It's sweet and sharp and funny. And it feels really original, which I think is hard to do now, especially about a 30-something-year-old woman getting it wrong, which always implies quite a hackneyed format, Mm. but it's really not. Mm. What about you, Doll? I'm kicking off with a column and a podcast that I enjoyed first. Giles Corrin wrote a spectacularly, enviably, frustratingly funny column on his frustrations with novel acknowledgements. He argues that the main flaw with the modern novel is the acknowledgements page at the back. And what he argues is that immersing yourself in a person's fictional world that they've created is such an a kind of anonymous and deeply absorbing experience where the identity of the author is obviously in plain sight, but so carefully hidden under layers and layers of, of unidentifiable story structure. And then it's just such a thud down to earth on the final page. To quote him, I'm just back from a beach holiday where I read maybe a dozen paperbacks, of which I don't think a single one managed to end just with a full stop, a couple of blank pages and the back cover. In every case, the novelist could barely contain his or her excitement at having got their boring story told and being able now to kiss the completely (laughs) irrelevant arse of everyone they've ever met, (laughs) especially the famous people. 
This humble little tome would not have been possible, they write, without my beautiful friends and family. Special thanks to Stephen Fry for all those cups of tea around the Arger at Blandings, Kate and all the Middletons for their use of their lovely plantation in St Lucia, and to Zadie S and Phoebe WB, you know who you are, for just being there on the end of a phone line from New York or Southern California when I couldn't find the mot juste. He continues... Reading is a solitary business. We curl up in an armchair or stretch out on a beach with a splayed penguin held up to shade our eyes from the sun. We are very possibly loners, most readers are. Shy, quiet, not very well connected, not wealthy, not big players in the world, not especially happy. Reading books because that is our escape. Our moment to feel part of something bigger than ourselves and our tiny, lonely lives. Shy, quiet... Well, apparently that is Charles Corrin. <laughs> so having connected deeply with the private world, a writer's created for us and feeling briefly uplifted and content. The last thing we want to see as we turn the final pages, huge thanks to George Namal for the loan of their luscious home on Lake Como. <laughs> what book has he been reading? This is a specific book. As I tussled with the final chapters, to Davy Attenborough for correcting my beginner's errors in anthropology, though all remaining mistakes are of course my own, to Cara and Poppy for standing naked in the library all through that long rainy weekend at Splunkett Castle as I struggled to capture the nudity of Venus, to David and Elton for popping round with cupcakes, and to Gore Vidal just for being dad. <laughs> I actually love the personal touches of, of an acknowledgements page. I always really look forward to them at the end of a book. And when they are very modest and curt... I am a bit disappointed just because I'm so nosy and I like getting a sense of the writer and their life and, and the process of writing that book. And I also love a celebrity name check. I remember being delighted when I saw Indian Night casually mentions Zadie Smith in her acknowledgements of I think it's my life on a plate. So it pains me to say that I do think he's got a point and I do understand where he's coming from. A very long or very, very personal acknowledgements page does seem slightly at odds with the purpose and service of a novel. I'll be furious if I don't get a thanks on the acknowledgements page of Ghosts. But hold on, let's see what he does on his own acknowledgement page. Oh, that's a good idea. So this is from Anger Management. Okay. Mm, it's an entire page long. <laughs> Is there any darling this and darling that? He thanks Michael Gove. I believe a few of us have heard of him. And then he ends with, this is quite Giles Corrin, a big thank you and, an, and a million apologies to all the others. I always thought I knew best and sometimes it's true, I didn't. Although I can't specifically think of any actual examples. Dot, dot, dot. So it doesn't end with a full stop. Anyway, it was a reminder to me of just how funny and clever Giles Corrin can be in his writing because I think... That's often overlooked because of his journalistic provocation. Yeah, you're right. His journalistic provocation can sometimes um, cloud that. I totally disagree, though. I love the acknowledgement page and you don't have to read them. I also think that it's nice to have that page to um, thank people because whether or not you've written a novel or a work of nonfiction, the effort that goes into it is just like monumental yeah. isn't it yeah um but there's obviously one book he's read that really fucked him off <laughs> and I, i'm trying i'm trying desperately to think what kind of highbrow big impact novels come out where lots of famous people are being thanked. i wonder what would happen if at the acknowledgements for how do we know we're doing it right if you just thanked zadie smith what would happen that's the thing is there's no there's no like barrier you can thank whoever you want yeah so you can I thank can try like, it out, Hillary, Clint Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And you don't have to specify that you haven't met them or you don't know them. <laughs> I have a friend who's a novelist who shall remain nameless. And he said that 
the moment he realised that an acknowledgements page had gone too far was in the woman who wrote Twilight, forgive me, I, I don't know her name offhand, it, when it got so far into her acknowledgements page that she thanked the band Muse for making music that she listened to while she wrote. <laughs> <laughs> What's the podcast you've been enjoying? I also wanted to recommend listening to Scarlett Curtis on Russell Brand's podcast, Under the Skin. Scarlett was a guest talking about activism and feminism and the connection between feminism and spirituality. And she was just so thoughtful and measured and patient and well-read and intelligent. And I think she was particularly sensitive and patient when Russell Brand was, and I'm a big fan of Russell Brand, but I did find him slightly bratty with her during this conversation. Oh, why? I don't have luminaries, so I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to listen. I think this is... I think it's quite a common problem when talking to men about feminism who have experienced pain or their own oppression in their lives. So in Russell Brand's case, he grew up in poverty, he's working class, he had an ill mother, he was hugely overweight as a child, he suffered from mental health issues, and he's an addict in recovery. I've experienced this with men before. I think conversations on male privilege for them seem like a minimization of their pain or a lack of understanding about their story or who they are or their journey and it's kind of a homogenization of maleness that they feel that they're exempt from. And while I really do understand where that kind of defensive thinking comes from, I think we have to work towards accepting that men have suffered and continue to suffer both in unique ways and as a result of, you know, the pressures of masculinity, while also accepting that they have and will continue to benefit from privilege in a way that women can't. Both of those things can be true. And I think the sooner men and women can accept that with grace, the more effective these conversations between men and women can be. I think that is so far off, but I think that's a really interesting analysis from what you've said i'd like to insert a clip here where she refers to a metaphor to depict intersectionality and i think it's very effective particularly for those who are still unsure of what intersectionality really means and why it's so important to include intersectional thinking and action first and foremost in modern feminism there's this amazing academic called kimberly crenshaw and she wrote this law paper called the basement analogy where she says, if you think of it, if you think of women as all being in this basement and on the above the basement, there are men and all the women are stacked up in the basement and the women at the top are the white middle class women who, but for their gender, would be at the top of the basement. And then as you get down, you get people who occupy more and more intersections of other points of oppression until at the very bottom you have people that are just discriminated at from every angle and the way that society has historically tried to enact feminism is by lifting up the women at the top and saying oh it will trickle down and if we lift these women up first we'll get to you in a minute you know and they'll be up there and they can help pull you up and actually it doesn't work like that it's never worked like that is what we've been doing forever you know women got the vote over 100 years ago and it still hasn't really worked and she just advocates for this method of feminism where you start from the bottom and then if you start from the bottom everyone will get up but you need to focus all your energy on those who are most discriminated against in order to release anyone hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hit me with your books, Panda. I'm going to start with the two books that struck me the most this summer. Firstly, the utterly beautiful On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. Isn't that an amazing title? I was about to say, I know it's irrelevant, but that's I walked past Wardstones the other day and I saw the, a window display of it and I thought, what beautiful, perfect title for a book. He's got a nouse for a perfect title. His debut poetry collection, which I think came out in 2016, um, is called Night Sky with Exit Wounds, which mm. I think is amazing. Um, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous is by Ocean Vong and it's sort of impossible to sum up this book, which is a debut work of autofiction, meaning that it's semi-autobiographical from the young Vietnamese-American poet. It takes the form of a letter from Little Dog, the protagonist, to his mother, a Vietnamese refugee who works in a nail salon who cannot read. It covers a tremendous amount of themes with the lightest touch. It's not a long book, like the trauma of the Vietnam War woven deep into his family. Masculinity and sexuality. Little Dog is gay and he falls for a boy who's in denial of his own sexuality. The opioid crisis which is rife in his working class town of Hartford, Connecticut plus race told deftly and rivetingly through the recurring motif of Tiger Woods oh interesting class, education and what it means to be American but it's the language that I think has the biggest impact you can tell that he's a poet there are masses of animal metaphors that he brings you back to again and again buffaloes, dogs, butterflies and all these really philosophical musings about life that extend so far beyond his own experiences um he writes like a man that has been on this earth for 300 years not 30 or 31 or i think he's around our age i just wanted to read an excerpt to give you a flavor the most common english word spoken in the nail salon was sorry it was the one refrain for what it meant to work in the service of beauty again and again i watched as manicurists bowed over a hand or a foot of a client some young as seven say i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm so so sorry when they had done nothing wrong i've seen workers you included apologize dozens of times throughout a 45 minute manicure hoping to gain warm traction that would lead to the ultimate goal a tip only to say sorry anyway when none was given In the nail salon, sorry is a tool one uses to pander until the word itself becomes currency. It no longer merely apologises, but insists, reminds, I'm here, right here, beneath you. It is the lowering of oneself so that the client feels right, superior and charitable. In the nail salon, one's definition of sorry is deranged into a new word entirely, one that's charged and reused as both power and defacement at once. Being sorry pays. Being sorry, even or especially when one has no fault, is worth every self-deprecating syllable the mouth allows, because the mouth must eat. How beautiful. Yeah, the whole book's like that. It's amazing. It's like meditative, that prose. As you know, sometimes when you read, like, the book's rhythmic or whatever, and you think, oh, that's so pretentious or whatever, there really is. No, it's like hypnotically paced. Yes, it is hypnotic. Oh, I can't wait to read that. I also adored Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2009, which I mentioned on the high-low that I wanted to read after nicking My Name is Lucy Barton from my friend's house 
and then reading a story in the New Yorker introducing Stroud's next book um, in the Olive series, Olive Again, which I now cannot wait to read. Anyway, it's a totally beautiful book and it shows how effective and rich a simple narrative structure can be. Olive is a retired school teacher living in a small seaside town in Maine who is both petty and cantankerous and also wise and surprisingly empathetic. And she's the focal point around which the book pivots so the chapters all tell different stories of the other residents in the town but they all intersect sometimes in tiny ways sometimes in really big ways sometimes about her herself with Olive I really recommend this book to anyone it's got such a universality my mum would love it my sister would love it Dolly you would adore it I think you'd fall in love with Olive herself now tell me about your love affair with a great love of mine my David Sedaris odyssey continues I read Me Talk Pretty One Day, which is a collection of essays he wrote back in 2000, I think, and is absolutely voice-defining, classic, flawless, Sidaris humour, observational and analytical and anecdotal. It's written in two parts. The first is about his young life and family life, which includes essays on his speech impediment and elocution lessons as a child, which had me in hysterics. Uh, There's an essay on his father's obsession with the Sedaris children all forming a band and how he thinks that will kind of safeguard them from social anxiety for the rest of their lives. He talks about his former meth addiction, which I had no idea about, his brief time as a performance artist and uh, his time when he was taking odd jobs in New York, such as working for a removal company and all the kind of New York stories and New York characters he encountered uh, while doing that job. It's kind of the perfect job for a humorist, I think. The second part of the book is about his move to France after he meets and falls in love with his long-term partner, Hugh, who has a house in Normandy. And it's a very interesting take on French culture and American culture and the French language and what it is to be a fish out of water. It's such a funny book. I know this is kind of ridiculous that I'm <laughs> advertising to everyone that this like really classic David Sedaris book is is um, so awesome because I'm sure everyone already knows that. But I just think that there no, is... No, I think lots of people our age actually haven't read it. Yeah, and I also think that... I'll never, we've talked about this before on the podcast, I'll never apologise for discovering classics later in life because I think a fear around seeming um, ignorant around books that you're meant to have read means that you kind of circumvent them for your whole life. So you'll never get around everything. Um, One of my best friends who's really well read was saying the other day that she'd never read any Zadie Smith and my first instinct was to be like, but how haven't you? And then I was like, for the same reason that I haven't read... I now can't think, but loads of authors. Yeah, I just think that the whole point of fiction and non-fiction and all literature is that it is a feast waiting for you whenever you're ready. Good books stand the test of time. Yeah, exactly. And it's such a, a feeling of abundance and bounty to know that there are libraries and bookshops just like filled to the brim with, with books that are just waiting for you in any time is an appropriate time to read them. So I'm very glad that I went and rediscovered this classic. It does stand the test of time and it's brilliant. There's no flab in it at all, no sentences spare. And just like all David Sedaris's work, be it his journalism uh, or his his literature or his non-fiction essays, is almost every sentence is quotable. Mm. And that's just such a sublime talent for a writer. 
I also love Calypso, which is his latest essay collection, which actually it's less of an essay collection. It's more memoirish, actually. And that was out last year. Um, and you can really feel his progression as a writer and his prog- and his progression as a man and his and his kind of aging from reading a book in 2000 to a book he read he wrote in 2018. It's very very funny. I think it's impossible for him not to write funny, but it's incredibly tender and it's much more vulnerable and it's much less wisecracking. It's really about how his large multi-sibling family all reacted to and dealt with the death of their mother and more recently the tragic suicide of their sister Tiffany and their kind of estrangement from their sister Mm. Tiffany so honest about it as well he's really honest about his own yeah family it made me wonder what in a way that's not very comfortable no no and I'm sure it hasn't been comfortable for the whole family yeah and for me just it, it felt like a a Trojan horse of a book because what you initially think is a kind of collective psychological profile of this very eccentric, very funny, quirky family is really a story about the importance of family and family identity and how to heal historic wounds and how to accept your family for all they are rather than what they aren't, which I I think nearly everyone I know could benefit from being reminded of. I'd like to read an extract which um, I told Panda made me cry earlier, and she pointed out that nearly every book makes me cry. And that seems rather callous of me now. (laughs) This is talking about his mother, uh, who was an alcoholic. I was living in New York, still broken unpublished, when my mother died. Aside from the occasional Sidney Sheldon novel, she wasn't a reader, so she didn't understand the world I was fluttering around the edges of. If she thought it was hopeless or that I was wasting my time writing, she never said as much. My father, on the other hand, was more than happy to predict a dismal future. Perhaps it was despite him that she supported us in our far-fetched endeavours, art school for me and Gretchen, Amy at Second City. Just when we needed money, at the moment before we had to ask for it, cheques would arrive. A little something to see you through, the accompanying notes would read. Love your old mother. Was she sober in those moments, I wondered, signing my name to another sheet of paper. Was it with a clear mind that she believed in us, or was it just the booze talking? The times I miss her the most are when I see something she might have liked, a piece of jewellery or a painting. The view of a white sand beach off a balcony. Palm trees. How I'd love to spoil her with beautiful things. On one of her last birthdays, I gave her a wasp's nest that I'd found in the woods. It was all I could afford. A nursery that bugs made and left behind. I'll get you something better later, I promised. Of course you will, she said, reaching for her glass. And whatever it is, I'm sure I'm going to love it. I think it. I think I was very moved by it because David Sedaris's work is so emotionless. In in a good way, he says he doesn't like writing about feelings. He doesn't find people. Does he? Yeah, he says. Well, he, for a man who doesn't like writing about feelings, that I'd say feelings come across. Yeah, but that's because he's such a deft writer. He finds the someone describing their emotional life right, sort of lazy, too lazy, and, and one note. And I think that's something that I'm really guilty of doing. Of plummeting emotional life and I think that what that shows is he's so economic with when he reveals his heart and then when he does it's so much more powerful because you never read something from David Sedaris that 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 is that emotional it's also not I don't know what the official definition of sentimental is so it's either not sentimental or it's like sentimental with a shard of glass in the side yes exactly talking about this lovely memory but he's also making it very clear that 
she was an alcoholic mm. and that he didn't know if she was saying these things so or, or sending these checks sober mm. or drunk so mm. there's that note of like painful almost quite callous realism mm. in the sentimentalism if it is sentimental yeah I get a bit lost with my literature no I think you're totally right and it's such a lesson to me as a writer who what I mainly write about is relationships friendships family love and I think that it's takes such a skilled writer to be able to capture those things in such a real and moving way without defaulting to schmaltz yeah totally what's your favorite David Sadara story um do you know the one that I actually really loved that I read in me talk pretty one day is a dark one um but it's an essay in which he talks about his father's obsession with his sister Amy Sedaris's beauty and it's it's very funny in a very dark way but the reason I think it's so good is it's indicative of a certain generation of man and a certain type of man who has an obsession with how people look and takes a kind of peculiar pride in the physical beauty of his family members so I really really like that how about you? I think that's totally a type of man. Yeah. Mine is The Silent Treatment, which is about his relationship with his father. It's funny, but also really sad and moving, like the best of his writing. I remember at one point he observes that his father has no hair on his lower legs. And his father says it's because he wore long socks every day that he worked at IBM. Mm-hmm. And it's just such mm-hmm. a small detail. Um, how he How he draws his father, I think, is... It's a masterpiece. He's so clear to me in his mind, his in, in my mind, his father. Who his father is. Yeah. I also love While You're Up There, Can You Check on My Prostate? As it's just an example of his writing <laughs> when it's very, very silly and very, very good. Yeah. Well, for my birthday this year, I asked my mum and dad basically for just every David Sedaris book ever written. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, so that's why you'll find you get them in like a box set like your Martin Amos ones. Oh, that's a good idea. That's Maybe write idea. to him and ask like a proper fan, like a stan. What else have you been reading? I've read so much great debut fiction in the last month, which makes me so happy. I love discovering, well, not even necessarily discovering, so it's not like I ferreted them out, like these great books arrive. But finding new voices, it's very exciting. Just reading new voices, especially when they're young women. Two books I loved, both had fun in the title, which I found interesting, and I wondered, are we entering a new era of satire regarding the concept of fun? It's a pretty loaded word these days, isn't it? I think we don't really know how to have fun anymore. I think there's a distinct lack of fun. to have fun that's not observed. Yeah. The most fun we ever had is by Claire Lombardo, and it's a meticulously woven, character-driven book about a family of four daughters and their parents, Marilyn and David. The Guardian called her the love child of Jonathan Franzen and Anne Tyler, but I think she's more like Meg Wallitzer. Our favourite. I'm seeing that book everywhere at the moment. Are you? That's good. Hopefully it means it'll do well over here too. I know know it's doing, at least I think it's doing well in America. It's a forensic dissection of family, past and present, and the roles they play. Wendy's the oldest daughter, caustic, furious and very rich, mourning the loss of her husband and baby. Violet is uptight, insecure and frequently bitchy, oppressively devoted to her two young sons, and dealing with the introduction of her adopted son, Jonah, back into her life. Liza is a professor with a depressed boyfriend and a surprise pregnancy, whilst Grace is pretending to be attending law school whilst going silently sad and mad away from home. It might be a little too sort of insular for some people. Mm. Like I said, the level of familial detail is extraordinary and I suppose quite narrow in 
geographical scope at least because of that but I loved it and if you like reading about relationships then it yeah, is yeah I was going to say is, that's right I've got straight it is deft it delves um, the other book with fun in the title is Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid who thanks Claire Lombardo in her acknowledgements as they did the same MFA together which I loved as I read them back to back and I yeah. thought it was quite nice that these debut authors had obviously supported themselves through that um, kind of terrifying time I think this one is going to be mega it's so sharp and observant and pacey there's an almost thriller like element to it it's about a childminder in her mid-twenties called Amira Tucker and her relationship with her boss a slightly frazzled and self-conscious woman called Alix uh, which is thrown into a different dimension when Amira a black woman is accused of kidnapping Alex's toddler daughter who's white at the supermarket one night it's about power dynamics uh, when one woman works for another who holds the power is it the desperate but moneyed boss or the much needed childminder race social commentary and also who why and how we are the women we are it's incredibly wry and as we know great work isn't always best selling but I really do think it should have the impact of Sally Rooney. Um, I've just seen that it doesn't actually drop until January 2020. Terribly sorry, but pre-order it now because it does wonders for an author's sales and it means it'll land on your doorstep pronto. Hooray. Anyway, I can't... I'm really hoping she comes over to England and does lots of interviews that we can read because she is so sharp. Doll, back to you. I read and loved a truly astonishing memoir called All at Sea by Decca Aikenhead, which tells the tragic and extraordinary tale of how the journalist Decca Aikenhead watched her beloved partner Tony drown as he went out to sea on holiday in Jamaica to save their small son who had walked out into the ocean from the beach. I'm desperate to read that. I remember reading an article by her when he, shortly after he passed away, I think, mm. after how about how different they were and how people saw their differences, not their similarities. Decca, by the way, for anyone listening who doesn't know, is the Sunday Times magazine's um, main profiler. Before that, she was at The Guardian, and she's famed for her brilliant and thorough take no prisoners but fair interviews she's an incredible interviewer yeah she's she's definitely i think thought of as one of the absolute best out there did it come out a little while ago yes it came out a little while ago and it is quite strange to read almost the other side of the writer because Mm -hmm. i've been reading her interviews about other people for so long but she is just as astonishingly talented if not more so when um describing her own story it's such a heartbreaking book for so many reasons the fact that it all happened in fairly shallow water that Decker was then widowed with two very young sons that it all happened before her eyes and and that the boys were old enough to remember it the memoir opens with that scene told vividly with devastating visceral effect not edging around any detail she's ruthlessly honest throughout the book it really kind of wins you from chapter one. And then the rest of the story works backwards. So so she briefly describes her earlier life, her first marriage, and how she left her first marriage for Tony, who she met in the most unexpected way and who was the most unexpected match for her. Uh, she talks about how, with this decision, she, she slightly blew her life up in order to be with this man who she knew she was meant to be with. And as you say, Panda, who she knew there was so much more compatible about them than incompatible. Um, And she talks about everything that kind of threatened to break them apart and the differences between their upbringings and their social lives and their backgrounds 
which seemed so enormous at times, which I won't go into now because I don't want to gloss over them. And Decca writes about them with such um, detail and compassion and without judgment. So if you want to know more, read the book. It's a very real, very unfairy tale like love story at its heart, but a truly passionate and inspiring love story. And then the rest of the book is about loss and how to survive grief day to day and how to explain death to little children and how to guide little children through trauma and how to continue to live. It's the most powerful book I've read on the nature of grief and I just want to thank Decca Aikenhead for sharing such a personal story uh, which would have been, I imagine, so difficult to write with such generosity and truth and occasional dark humour and poetic lyricism. I'm sure it has helped and will continue to help so many who are grieving and for the rest of us who have been lucky enough not to experience such an acute tragedy, it's just a lesson about love, the whole book. And there's, I don't know if it's in the book, but the even like the double or triple blow was that she then got um, cancer after he died. Do you know that's not included in the book, but I read afterwards. That sounds completely wonderful. I really would love it. Um, yeah. We often get emails about books on grief, so that sounds like a good one to add. Grief is a thing with feathers by Max Porter is yes. another one that um, I always recommend. I also really enjoyed Theft by Luke Brown, which is out in distant February, but you can pre-order it now. And as Panda said, that does great things for an author and it means it lands on your doorstep the day it's published. It's a raw, funny, surprisingly quite soft and tender first-person novel told from the perspective of a character named Paul who is grappling with a number of changes in his life. He is grieving his mother. His formerly close relationship with his sister is breaking down. He's about to lose his beloved uh, rent-stabilised flat in London. Uh, I think this is quite a common story, actually. So his character, I think, is in his late 30s, early 40s, and he found this kind of great deal with this East London flat share when he first moved to London. And then you know 10 15 years in his landlords finally (laughs) wised up to how much he was undercharging them so i think this is a story that's common with a lot of people and what happens when you're about to kind of lose your london home lose the city that held so much promise for him as a young man and by proxy a kind of sense of his own youth and energy and virility the story is about belonging I would say that's the kind of overarching theme and there are lots of themes on class perceived intellectualism the divides and differences between the north and the south of England what makes a life a success who belongs in London and who will be able to stay in London with the housing crisis and there's a lot as well about um, masculinity and what masculinity looks like and it also has this very clever backdrop of the EU referendum and result happening throughout its timeline, which probes even further on this question of belonging. I grew so fond of the protagonist and I loved that there was a brother-sister relationship that was so central to the story because that's not really a relationship you often read about. And I think it can be such a dislocated dynamic, the relationship between brother and sister. And it's the relationship that I was most drawn to through the book. And I also just really liked it because it dug into questions of how, you know, going back to that, to what I said about the Russell Brand podcast, it looks at how, as a modern man, 
how to reconcile your own pain and struggles with the truth that your gender has and continues to inflict so much pain and damage on the world. And you really see this character on that journey. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes you grow frustrated with his occasional short-sightedness, but he wants to be better and he wants to learn. And I want to learn more about what it is to be a man facing those very confronting and I imagine very confusing truths about the disparity between womanhood and the male experience. So it was a really refreshing, enjoyable book and I highly recommend it. Panda, over to you. I really enjoyed another debut novel, Expectations by Anna Hope, which is about three millennial women who are now in their mid-30s living in London aren't living the lives that they thought they'd be as flatmates in their early 20s. It really tapped into something that I've been writing about for my book, this idea that an increase in choice for women can lead as much to confusion and disappointment as it does to a feeling of opportunity and contentment. Mm. Kate is a new mother bowing under the weight of her relationship and the demands of her baby. Lissa is a struggling actor feeling increasingly bitter about the dullened lives of the women around her. And Hannah is a charity director enduring rounds and rounds of IVF, losing herself and her marriage a little more with every unsuccessful round. Lissa's mother is one of my favourite people in the novel as she really manages to kind of frame uh, a generational anxiety in a very um, sort of casual but I suppose quite lacerating way and there's a lot of wisdom in what she says so at one point she says you must keep hold of your friendships Lissa the women they're the only thing that will save you in the end quite Dolly Alderton that I thought mm. <laughs> I think you sent me some segments of this book you sent me some photos I sent you a, I sent you a screenshot of yeah. it and then this is Anna Hope writing on Lissa she is the sum total only of her failures. She could float up over these people, this city that she loved, but which does not love her back, which does not give her what she needs to live, only to survive. Um, I feel like I say this a lot, but you will love this, don't you? No, this sounds very, very my thing. If I can get you to leave today with this and Olive Kitteridge, then Deal. I will be happy. Donzo. And I absolutely loved Asbel the World and its wife, the stocking filicised follow-up to the supremely, unbelievably, record-breakingly successful This Is Going To Hurt by Adam Kay. More than two million copies sold of that book. Twas the Night Shift Before Christmas is a little book about the six Christmases uh, that Kay, now a comedian, spent working as a junior doctor in a row. It got to the point where he was like, I don't even know how to not have Christmas in hospital. It's potentially even dirtier than the first one with one hugely impactful sad story in there which was originally included in the first book and which he removed because he felt it was too much but he then said in the footnotes that he regretted removing it really? as it was really formative for him um the book is also a reminder to consider the 1.4 million nhs staff working christmas day while we stuff ourselves silly and recline on the sofa for anyone whose favorite bits of the first book was the insertion of objects into holes hello kinder egg proposal you will not be disappointed there is tons and tons of the festive sort of that and for those sticky fingers racing to the keyboard it's out in october so not quite yet (laughs) but you can pre-order it now and um it will absolutely satisfy everyone who's been just yearning for a a follow-up to his first book and back to you dolly it's one of our favourite writers. You name-checked her earlier. Meg Wallitzer, The Interestings. I cannot believe it took me this long to read it. 
predictably, I totally and utterly adored it. It's my favourite book of the summer, favourite book I've ever read of Meg Wallitz's. I'd even go as far as saying it's now one of my favourite books of all time. God, it reminds me of Nicaragua. I read it on my honeymoon and I remember lying on a beach in Nicaragua. Oh, it's amazing. Great cover too, isn't it? it it's so sprawling and absorbing. I think that I will remember there was a part of my trip when I was in Vietnam where I was reading it and it was like I was with all those characters which is sitting on the beach with me and then I made Farley read it straight after I finished it because she could just see from my reactions as I read it that this was a really special unique novel and Farley adored it as well I feel like that's not necessarily been hugely read over here really I feel like everyone's Do read you? it yeah yeah you feel like it's the sort of freedom by Jonathan Franzen yeah, I feel like it's her definitive book that if you love Meg Wallace... It's definitely uh, my favourite of her yeah. books, yeah. I won't give too much for synopsis because, first of all, I can't because, as I said, it's such a kind of sprawling and epic tale. But also because I'm so desperate for everyone on this earth to purchase it and read it now. So I won't spoil anything for anyone. In short, it's a story that follows an ensemble of friends from the end of their adolescence through to their middle age and combines that incredible mixture of having a twisty, turny, totally unexpected cinematic plot, as well as characters with psychology and lives that are so fleshed out and well-formed and believable, you can see them in front of you as you read. And then in addition to that, the most beautiful, delicious, Moorish, fresh, unexpected, perfect prose. It's an incredible story about friendship, fortune, ageing, success and what makes an interesting person and what makes an interesting well-lived life adored it um, would you read it again yes you've made me want to read it again actually because i can remember that i loved it and i can remember a few specific bits but mm. i it's like when i think of the secret history i can remember that i loved it and i remember a few specific bits but i actually can't there's so much i now can't remember do you know what's to. so amazing about meg wallace's prose and she does this in all her books and i really it really like clarified to me as I read the interestings you know when you're with someone who's telling a story I'm probably a bit like this and they keep meandering off into subsections of the story which kind of irritate you because you want them to get back onto the kind of yeah I definitely the narrative arc Meg Wallitzer I don't know how she does it she has this main kind of narrative thrust that she's rapidly moving through and then there are all these b roads that are kind of circular that she breaks off from that are almost like an aside that she'll do for five pages so she'll say and here we meet a couple and then she'll go into the ancestry of one of those people in the couple and it's so interesting i've never read someone who can tie together so many subplots and diverging um narrative twists and make every single one as engaging as the other i think she's the most talented novelist of our time it's an extraordinary gift well she is stupendously character driven there's Mm. not i mean there is there's always a um uh action and actually in the female persuasion as well the action's kind of you know not insignificant Mm. but it's the books are completely made by as you said the the quality of the asides and she needs those asides because she needs to give that background and even actually you just saying that about the female persuasion i remember that there's a scene in it where one of the main characters is having a massage 
And while she's having a massage, there's this like 15 page backstory about her university years. And it's so good. And it's like any other book, you'd be like, oh, no, I don't want to read all this. I want to go back to where we are in the story. But she just, I've never read a writer that can do it so well. I feel well. like you get told, like, Fiction 101 not to do that as I well. know. I don't know how she does Break it. Break them rules. Break them rules. Well, only if you're as good as Meg Wallison. I also absolutely fell head over heels in love with The Confession by Jesse Burton this summer. I can confidently say you're going to adore this book, Pandora. It's told from two perspectives. A 30-something woman in modern-day London who is feeling untethered and in search of identity and searching for the story and the whereabouts of the mother who she never knew. Spliced in with that plot is the story of her mother set between Hampstead and California in the 1980s. It begins with a love affair between two women, one young and green with a huge appetite for life, the other a slightly older, very glamorous, very assured, confident literary superstar. But the love story slowly but surely takes a dark turn. I swallowed this book whole in a day. Its backdrop and the worlds that it's set in are just fascinating and elegant and enjoyable to be in and find out more about. But beyond that, it's a very raw, emotional, compelling story about identity and femininity and feminism and motherhood and whether you can marry creative purpose with domestic life as a woman, which is a kind of tension that I've always been fascinated by. It really swoops into big philosophical territory through these very human, very moving uh, stories of relationships. And just like Meg Wallitzer, Jessie Burton has that amazingly unique talent of being able to weave page-turning plot alongside really kind of accomplished and dexterous characterization and really believable relationships that you completely invest in. Also, without giving too much away, there is a scene in it near the end which describes in detail something that many women go through and yet I realised as I read it that you never really read about and I think it must have taken great courage to write about it so unapologetically um, as it's a part of life and there is a lot of life in this book real disappointing uncomfortable heartbreaking life but it isn't depressing and it isn't maudlin and I think you know the more reality in life that you can cram into a novel the better and um yeah it's a corker for me I loved it you can pre-order it now I think it's out uh later in September oh brilliant uh lots of you remember Jesse's name from the miniaturist as well which was a huge seller when that came out wasn't it yeah it did enormously well my last Biblio Dispatch is some brilliant non-fiction that I have read. I've been reading a butt-ton of non-fiction. Yes, that's the technical term, for essay research purposes. So I'm not going to relay the entire pile here for time purposes. And also probably not wise to reveal all my source material before the book actually comes out. But I wanted to highlight a few new works of non-fiction that I loved. Firstly, we need new stories by The Guardian journalist Nezreen Malik. This is a staggeringly intelligent book. Like I said, I've been reading a lot of non-fiction, including some huge bestsellers. And even compared to those, the research here is just next level. It's incisive and bold and relentlessly questioning of the status quo, and it's hugely original. 
In short, it's about debunking the myths of contemporary culture, oftentimes historical ones that have merely been given a sort of cloak of modernity, and explaining where they came from and why they are fallacies. She coins all these brilliant terms like the setup, frequency scrambling, the slippery slope, grievance flipping. It's split into six myths, which she debunks. The myth of gender equality, the myth of a political correctness crisis, the myth of a free speech crisis, the myth of damaging identity politics, the myth of virtuous origins, and the myth of the unreliable relator before offering new tools for new stories. If you buy any political non-fiction this year, buy this. It's more than just social commentary. It's political commentary it's social sciences it is I mean it's so intelligent I had to sort of pause after each page because there was so much to take in but my god she's done her research I've read a lot of praise for this book have you yeah I want to go and read lots around it there's just so much to learn I can really tell that when we're having discussions about things that I find a bit complicated in the future you know whether it's like political things or cultural changes I would come back and look at her headings you know like the setup which is about how um society is set up to think kind of xyz um and it just really helps you understand like quite unwieldy concepts mm-hmm. um and challenge them mm. uh which is not something i do enough i think i get scared of offending or i get scared i'm not clever enough so if something doesn't make sense to me i think that that's on me rather than it might be that i don't agree with it and instead of like uh leaning into that Mm. i shy away i also really enjoyed indistractable by nur el who is the man who wrote hooked in 2014 a book about how big tech got us addicted to our devices um which was huge at the time and he claims controversially uh tech addiction is not a thing mm. listen to this listen to um his high octane debate with ezra klein on the ezra klein show i really recommend it they you know properly disagree for like most of the podcast and they're not afraid to sort of sanitize it for listening instead i think i've mentioned him before but the ezra klein show which is a vox podcast is um absolutely brilliant ezra klein is so well researched on every author that comes on and he just speaks so in, so winsomely. He reminds me of Ollie Mann, actually, who does The Week Unwrapped, which is the podcast for oh, yeah, a week, great, funny enough. They just have such tremendous base knowledge um, of uh, society and politics and tech and contemporary issues. Um, and it's sort of the opposite to what Tim Lovejoy has on the Saturday brunch. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> Such um, an unexpected comparison. Well, it's, I mean, Tim Lovejoy's at one end in terms of interest and knowledge of his guests. And then you've got Ezra Klein and Ollie Mann at the other. Have you ever watched, um, is it called Saturday Brunch? Yes, I think it's called that. Is it called Saturday Brunch or is it Sun- Sunday, Sunday, Sunday Brunch? Brunch? Have you ever watched Jake Yap, who's a very funny comedian who is on Charlie Brooker's CJ screen? CJ has. Right? He's nodding furiously. Uh, he does these, like shows in 60 seconds and he does an impression of Sunday brunch in 60 seconds and his impression of Tim Lovejoy is so good I think we're gonna have to insert a clip here yes please (laughs) good morning welcome to Sunday brunch with me Tim Lovejoy it's a completely different format to something for the weekend which I hosted in the same slot on BBC2 that was all about celebs and cooking this is all about food and famous people anyway it's no biggie it's only telly it's just a couple of top blokes slightly too old for their low-rise jeans hanging out for classic bands look at me I'm just leaning on the set owning 
in the spice. Uh, Scouse Psychic, what are you cooking up for us today? Well, uh, today I'm doing French toast with you. All right, mate, that's enough of you. Back to me. Only joking. <laughs> Going back on track, at first the book tells you what um, you sort of already know, I think, about being distracted in the modern world. But part three kicks in and you get masses of really useful arsenal and some very interesting studies about how to be less distracted in this world. Even if his wife's light-up concentration crown or his own indistractable T-shirt, which they both wear when to let others know that they can't be interrupted, (laughs) might feel a bit far for you. Here are a few of his recommendations from him to me to you that I thought were really interesting and that I'm going to check out. Mixmax is an email tool which allows you to clear your inbox but delay when those emails are sent. So, for example, you could do an email clear out on Friday but delay them so that they're sent on Monday to avoid accruing more emails that you don't Mm. want. Another tip is Pocket, which this one I loved. I really need this. So it's an app where you pull all the stories that you want to read from your browser and into the app to save for later, meaning that you can close those 30 open tabs on your laptop and you don't forget the stories that you want to read, but you don't get distracted away from the work that you're meant to be doing. And then you can get those long reads um, read to you. So Pocket will read out all of the articles that you've put into the app and you can save them all for when you go on a walk or go to the gym and he calls it temptation bundling so when you have something that you don't really want to do like go to the gym you bundle it up with something tempting uh like getting to listen to all the articles that you want to read and i thought that was just quite clever that's good idea and lastly i like the sound of this one forest which perhaps isn't the most useful app ever, but sounds quite adorable. You open it and you press the button plant and a little seedling begins to grow into a tree, which is destroyed if you break your designated phone-free time. It's not an actual tree. It's a bit less sad than a Tamagotchi dying. But it's a popular productivity app, so why the hell not? Some people might like watching their little tree grow and not want to go onto their phone and ruin it. Anyway, let us know if you try any. I'm definitely going to download Pocket. My last non-fiction recommendation is Crib Sheet by Emily Osler, which was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, Less so over here, I think. But if you liked the book you wish your parents had read by Philippa Perry, which is still in the bestseller list, it's absolutely killing it. Um, Or if you are a parent looking for a parenting book that is non-biased and data-driven, which is 100% me, I'm increasingly interested in books accidental but just suddenly realised that so much of the non-fiction I'm reading is written by economists or psychologists who have like a particular um, interest in or a specialisation in economics. Um, I've read a ridiculous amount of them over the summer. Um, This is brilliant. I don't often recommend parenting books. In fact, the only other one I've mentioned on the high-low is Philippa Perry's. But this is really a revelation for, notice a theme with what I like, Uh, it's myth debunking. Um, Osla looks at the data, so randomised studies, which is true data, rather than just like those endless surveys that we find hilarious, where there's actually no controlled conditions. So it's not scientific. It doesn't really say much about the topic itself. Listen, if you're referring there to the (laughs) survey about people not finding love in Peterborough, I can test that. And Hull. (laughs) I love those. I just think (laughs) there's quite a lot of them used when people are trying to um, support their own parenting. And that's what's dangerous. So she looks at the data behind breastfeeding, weaning, sleep training, and many more flammable topics. And I have to say, I found it hugely interesting as well as reassuring. Two caveats. Data can be interpreted in different ways. Very So one economist might interpret data and others won't. And It's not absolute. It's not absolute. It can't be absolute. This book has had tons of positive press, but I think I did read something saying that she'd read the data wrong. So 
not everyone thinks it's flawless. Second thing I would say is at no point does she say you should rear your children using data only. What she says and what I agree with is that data is a useful scaffolding when you are faced with so many choices. It, mm. You know, it can be really difficult to know what to do as a new parent or not even necessarily a new parent. Um, and so she presents the data and then says, you do what you want, but do it armed with kind of um, real arsenal, not yeah. not anecdotal arsenal i hate it when anecdotes are used as evidence or bias or the mum guards that get really angry with you when you make your own decisions i find all that really suffocating and claustrophobic and it makes me go very very quiet about anything motherly yeah in public i really recommend this book or if you're pregnant um i really recommend osler's first one which is also a bestseller called expecting better which was written in 2013 and is all about again kind of the data behind lots of myths about pregnancy and finish us off dolly I enjoyed reading The Dud Avocado by Elaine Dundee. This was a book written in the 1950s and uh, I think was a huge hit at the time and then had a sort of millennial resurgence a few years ago, no doubt, because it has the word avocado in the title and we're all fucking morons. And it also got re-released with a beautiful cover. I've got it on my shelf and I'm going to read it. Yeah. Did you get the really lush cover? No, but I have seen that cover and it is very beautiful. I love that your theory on how it's gone mass again because it's got avocado <laughs> in the title I actually don't even think you're totally wrong either <laughs> it's about a young beautiful American woman who is keen for a life full of adventure and romance and stimulation and excitement so she moves to Paris dyes her hair pink wears ball gowns at breakfast and sleeps with a lot of handsome and inappropriate men can you imagine why I love this book? I was just thinking that. <laughs> I thought probably the dyeing the hair pink bit you wouldn't be so into for the rest of it. Um, it took a while for me to get into it as it's told in the first person and it's very much of a different time. So the language is um, really quite theatrical and the story and its gender dynamics and its traditions feel obviously anachronistic. But I really, really got into it and by the end I was totally in love Uh, with the protagonist Sally it's funny and her voice is so distinctive you really do end up feeling love for her despite her foolishness and frivolity it's a kind of glamorous vibrant screwball coming of age comedy with some very unexpected plot twists and at risk of sounding like my mum when I present her with a dress that she doesn't like it's very fun is there anything like Nancy Mitford? Have you read any Nancy Mitford? I'm still not as familiar with Nancy Mitford as I should be. It's kind of like, um, it's it has something of the Holly Lightly about it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think you'd really like it. I read a lot of heavy books this summer as well, and it was it was a really enjoyable kind of light relief. Yeah. Um, and as I said, it's of its time, and it's set in Paris, which is always gorgeous. I read The New Me by Halle Butler. That's a bit of a gear change from the Dada Avocado. <laughs> it very much is. I read it on your recommendation, Panda. Oh, I'm so glad. It was quite monstrously depressing. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's so comic and well-observed that I don't... I didn't really mind, actually. It's in a similar genre to Otessa Moshveg's work. Yeah, it's really like um, my year of rest and relaxation, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and also, you were the one who pointed this out about my reading habits, which I hadn't realised, but Farley said it as well when we were away. I don't really mind depressing books. Yeah, I don't think I can read 
too many of them, I don't think. I think, I don't know why I could, I can somehow, as someone who's like so... Actually, I say that I adored a little life and that, I mean, destroyed yeah. people I know. Yeah, it's for someone who's like so incredibly sensitive, I do somehow find a way of... Outsourcing your pain. <laughs> getting through it. Although it's quite a short because I read it on a plane journey. So yeah. it's not, you're not hugely, it's dark, but it's only a kind of brief moment yeah. in the dark. And it's a book about depression, basically. You don't really realise it's about depression until you get to the end. It's about a woman who is feeling kind of a bit defeated by and a bit despondent about life, who's desperately looking for direction going from temp job to temp job until she lands a role where she's convinced she's going to find her professional home with no idea that the women in the office who work with her are highly confused, if not slightly repulsed by her strange habits, which is so painful to read, um, but also does have some very darkly comic moments. It's about the kind of malaise of daily office life and the very human need to belong and fit in. And mainly the overarching theme is it's about the relentless lies and the false promises of capitalism. As I say, I know it sounds very grim, but it's very sharply observed and is peppered with uncomfortably recognisable dynamics and characters and cultural touchstones and references for our generation. How much did you love that quote, which is really depressing and it's got this kind of circularity of horror back up my desk I sit and slowly collect money that I can use to pay the rent on my apartment and on food so that I can continue to live and continue to come to this room and sit at this desk and slowly collect money (laughs) (laughs) it is great though yeah it's really great it's really funny particularly at the um, beginning yeah it's um so harsh and sharp isn't it? It's harsh. That's it. It is. It's um. It's harsh and uncomfortable, but it's cruel. Actually, that's the yeah, word. Yeah, it's I'd cruel. Use. But but not unwarrantedly, unpurposefully cruel. There's a point to the yeah, cruelty. but also like without sounding like one of those twats in the pub. Like we're living in a very cruel world, and the existence that this woman is in is how many people feel like totally despondent and unsatisfied and desperate. That's how a lot of people in the midst of modern anxieties feel. So any book that delves that kind of reality, I think, is is a great book. I also think it does something very knowing because there's a lot of books at the moment written about um, millennial female middle class anxiety. And what has been maybe suggested at times is that, like, there's not much self-awareness there for the fact that these women, um, most of the time the protagonists are middle class and white and a lot of them have a safety net i think she has a safety net in the yeah her parents, she, her parents. Financing. so there's a kind of you know there's a lot of like this is you know it's fine and it's great to write these tales but what about the women that don't have the privileges that they have but what i would say is really knowing about this book is that by having it from several points of view that the cruelty is towards her the cruelty yes. is revealing of her um sort of extraordinary laziness and then also obsession with this permanent job as if her whole life's going to change even though it's not what she wants and it's not wallowing as well as you said because it's told from different perspectives no not at all thank you for recommending me that panda 
my absolute grande plaisure. Thank you very much for listening to the Hilo. We've missed you. We've missed each other more. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps boost us in the charts and other people uh, to find us. You can tweet us at the Hilo Show. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com. Bye-bye. Bye.